Imagine if each morning when you wake up, you're smiling and looking forward to your day, knowing you are happy even while you're dealing with grief and loss. The Grief and Happiness Podcasts inspires, comforts, and supports you with each new episode. I'm Emily Zerothret, welcoming you to explore with me your life of endless possibilities. Aloha. I am very happy that you came to join us today on our podcast. I have a fascinating guest and her book, it was it just amazing to me. I, it's not like anything that I've read before. And I think that you're really going to enjoy hearing about it. It gives you an opportunity to think of things a little differently because we all approach grief and loss in different ways and she certainly did so welcome thank you emily good to be here oh it's wonderful to have you could we start off by you telling us a little bit about you yeah well let's see i'll, I'll say i'll give my geography i'm i'm based in seattle although i'm originally canadian and some might recognize that accent still shining through <laughs> my my life path has taken me through many different places that I've lived in the world, and um, I'd say probably the the the, um, the guiding aquifer, that underground kind of river, that's shaped my life has been a spiritual path. Has been a particular um, tuning of myself that happened very young when I was about. 17 actually where i had a, an experience that kind of opened my me to to something beyond the ordinary or the, the my sort of ego mind but i would i would say i came from a very scientific rational family and that was the the context i grew up in and in many ways my life has been about this bridging of a different way of seeing things, or let's say the awakening of consciousness to, you know, expanding how we see ourselves, others in the world, and that translating into really practical, effective ways of being in the world. So that took me into management consulting for years um, in a kind of uh, exciting career that based me, uh, I was in Toronto and then based in Paris for many years. And uh, that was during the 90s, so very exciting time when many corporations were shifting from their big command and control, sort of more masculine models to more flexible, nimble, collaborative direction. And then that led me, and maybe we may get into some of these little junctures later as we uh, have a conversation together, but that led me into noticing that women, the few women that were at senior levels in those organizations were were suffering enormously, didn't seem to be able to open to these ways of being that I thought would have been more feminine or, or, or let's say, more easily embodied by women, and they, and they were not. And that uh, took me back to graduate school to understand more about women in development in the field of clinical psychology. And that that led to to years of research actually from the very beginning i put i'd moved to the seattle by then with my first husband and um i was again in this way that i think i'm designed to both bring things new into the world but then have them show up and be be legitimate in the, in the real world i i put my programs in universities from the very beginning so the research 
around women and a, and a new path of awakening um, leadership potential would be, you know, grounded. That was 10 years of work, led to a book, my first book. And um, just as that book was ready to come out, my husband uh, died very suddenly and tragically. And that, I think the second book is going to pick up sort of there at, at that juncture. But that, that maybe gives listeners a little sense of my context. Uh, I, I found uh, a lot of what you were talking about was making me think, oh, I wish I knew more about that. There was one word that you used that I'm not sure <clears throat> how you pronounce it because it wasn't one I was familiar with. Is it mysterial? Is that how you say it? Mysterial. Yeah, the mysterial. Um, my first book was called The Way of the Mysterial Woman. And the word mysterial is, is a sort of hybrid of mystery and the word medial. And, and this came about because we, after doing all this work, and we were starting to write my co-author, Dr. Susan Cannon, and I were starting to write the, the, the book about this pathway for women. Um, we were seeing these very new ways of being, and we didn't have a good way to describe it. We kept saying things like, are they like full presence leaders? Are they integral leaders? Are they, what, what's the word? And then one day that word just popped out because what women definitely were doing was being very open to the mystery, being able to embrace uncertainty, ambiguity, basically be with the unknown in profound new ways. And then medial is a word that um, Tony Wolf, who was Carl Jung's collaborator, came up with to describe an aspect of the feminine psyche that can bridge between differences, between the conscious and the unconscious, between yin and yang, and this sort of have middle way for, you know, be able to be know how to find a middle way in, in the midst of chaos. So that's a new word. And then it just popped out of my mouth and I decided, we decided, you know, why can't we invent a word? Who said we can't invent a word? You know, and especially because what we're talking about, we're seeing emerging right now in women is what we would call an evolutionary unfolding. It's never been seen before. This way of being that we need to bring online now to meet the challenges of the times. So, um, yeah. I invented it. There you go. Well, I'm glad you did because I, I think you're right on with it. It it really uh, suits the times now. It seems like yeah. things really are changing a lot. We were so male centric in leadership for forever. It seems like, and in, in, at least in our country, and the I think the masculine side is not very happy with the changes that are being made because they used to be an in charge. And well, right. And then also, whenever I would say what we look at right now is many, many historians and futurists would, would agree that we're in a particular phase shift right now of a new wave coming in. Some people are calling it an integral wave or whatever this new wave is. And we've had seven of these, you know, the most recent one being the postmodern. But whenever a new wave comes in, there's always the kicking up of the shadow of the wave before. It's just natural. It happens. And it's really important at that moment then that we don't lose faith or think, you know, we're going backwards. It's hard, though, because we see it certainly here in, um, well, actually, we see it in all of the Western world. And I think we could even say we could, without any problem saying the globe here, there sort of seems to be an entrenching around some of the, the masculine power and authority, the dominator, 
uh, ways of being the judge, the, the holding on to power, the hyper-masculine, the toxic masculine. But let's just say the fact that it's arising does not mean it wasn't there. Mm-hmm. It has been there. And it is arising now. And we know this just in terms of how shadow works in the individual psyche. But in the collective psyche, it's the same. You know, it's arising now in the collective psyche, but it's actually important that it rise because otherwise it's just held toxically in the unconscious. So, but it's not very pretty right now. And it is, and it does take something for, for us to hold steady and uh, have that, you know, long arc of history as Martin Luther King said in, in mind. Yes. Yes. Wow. It, it just making me think about so many different things about society and how that that uh, it's it's so valid and and so important that we we are paying attention to that sort of stuff because for so long we've just swept a lot of things <laughs> under the carpet and and just not dealt with them and like you said it's important for them to come up we can't move forward until things come up and we pay attention absolutely and so. It, Tell us about why you wrote the book. Not 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 that book, but uh, you, you you yeah. The, you made no. Don't have it in front of you. you I've, made, I've got it right make, here. Make, make your path by walking. Is yeah, that it? yes. That's it. Okay. Yeah. You make your path by walking. You. That was the word that I was missing. You make your path by walking. Yeah. Well. Um, yeah, that's that's a great to sort of lay that out. I think when this first book manuscript was complete, I was so I was just ready. We were ready to take off. We were running a program a few days, uh, in a few days from when my husband died, and when he when I found him dead and he had taken his life. So that's also important to say. That was a very really um, profound piece of his leaving for me to integrate and for the community around him and family to to integrate. The very first thing was to live through this. So I was not thinking about this as a writer or as an author. In fact, I'm often shocked when people come out with a book right after or a year later after a tragedy. I don't, I don't know how it's possible. But for me, um, the main thing was to to live in the way of the mysterious woman. Like I was committed to living everything I'd been teaching, what I'd also embodied to a certain extent, but really seeing would this hold up, would I hold up um, through these incredibly dark times? Because I lost everything all at one time, and not just my husband and that future, but because of the financial world of his business that was about to implode. I also lost my home, my community, my, you know, really pretty much everything on the outer surface of my life, the way I knew it. So the first thing was to just live through that in a really mindful, um, just in the best possible way that I could. uh, And then eventually to get back to my first book and get the publisher and get it out. So that was the first few years. The, the first book came out in 2016. My husband died in 2013. So then I was still rebuilding my life from, I mean, literally the ashes. And eventually, maybe four or five years after David died, I was ready to write 
for myself. I still was not ready yet to write for others. This was like I needed to write. And I would go away to a friend's beautiful cottage on Orcas Island and take a take five, six days at a time and just drop in to write, to, to really help myself walk over the ground of the traumas of that first year with the self that was on board, you know, that many years later. That was deeply healing for me and something I do highly recommend to people. And I'm sure you do that because I know you offer writing for for people. I journaled all as I went along, but that that wasn't the same as having enough, being resourced enough that I could actually take myself deeply back over the the uh, the scorched earth of my life. And then after I'd done that writing, I, then I I showed it to my my editor from the first book, just to sort of say, okay, and it was super vulnerable. I remember giving this to her and and just like, you know, checking email every couple of days to see, because it was such a different kind of writing. The first book did not have my own story. This is very much a memoir guidebook combination. And um, she wrote back a, f- a few days later and uh, with just a really positive encouragement to to get it out in the world, to to shape it for others, that it would be very healing and helpful for others. And so, and then I, I decided to do that. And then it moved quite quickly because then once I could feel that could be a value, then um, I really buckled down and did that and but you know, of course, as a writer, I was also running programs and working in all the other ways that I do. So it was it was a lot of work. Um, and then got in the publishing slipstream, and here it is coming out um, shortly. It's, you know, I I have read so many books on related to grief in, in one way or another, and yours is unique by far. And I really think there's a place there in, in the market for it because... It's not a simple memoir. Lots of people write grief books that are memoirs, and it's very good for them to write them. I think it really helps them a whole lot. And they're interesting to read, but I'm not sure how really helpful they are. Where where yours is so much deeper. There's it's it's very rich and there's a, there's a mm-hmm. lot to it. And I, I can see how it's going to reach that audience it's been looking for something that that they haven't been able to find yet out there so you know, in, a, in a way it was uh well thank you for saying that i i respect your perspective especially as a writer yourself what the what i realized as i after i'd written my own stories and i looked back at because i knew i was living this way I call the way of the mysterious woman, let's say, which is the integration of these, you know, of feminine and masculine capacities. I knew I had been living that. But when I when I really looked at it, I, I went back to the first book. In the very last chapter of the first book, we listed these what we called meta capacities that were starting to emerge for women now. And and I this book, the new book, is for men and for women. So it is certainly not just for for women. And actually, a lot of men read my first book. My research was with women, so it was written uh, for women, but a lot of men could relate to this. But some of these capacities like multidimensional knowing, embracing paradox, uh, tending the field, 
authentic presence. There were eight of these that we had seen, these ways of showing up that seemed to be a match for the complexity of these times. And I, I suddenly realized, oh, that's because when I had written that first book, I hadn't lived in those either. We had just seen them. We're like the map, you know, we just spotted the new earth or the new world, but we hadn't lived in it yet. And then I was, and then I lived in it. And then the second book really is, I think, helpful from the perspective of, I've had just had someone today say that they'd read it and their husband had died tragically 20 years ago. But all of a sudden reading this, they could see what they had cultivated, what had grown in them. And then my main probably focus of the book, as you know, is when loss grabs us, or let's say life situation grabs us and takes it us down, and it might not be a death of a loved one, it could be the loss of, a, of an identity. Maybe we have a health crisis or moving or a child leaves the house or there are losses or profound losses right now to take in around the planet and global the crisis that we're in, the, the planetary crisis. So they know there's a lot to say right now that this is a time where loss is just, in, I think, in everyone's life, even without COVID, but certainly with COVID, that was true. And so, so then it is, how could we live through those times of enormous disruption when the heart is broken open? How can we find the, um, the, the, the fertile soil, basically, in, the, in that cracking open of the heart and from which something new could really arise? And that is different than I just got to get through this thing to get back to who I was before. It is actually that it's an, an powerful and, and hot alchemy that's possible. Not easy, not one we go looking for, but when it happens, you know, how we go through can really, really be profoundly transformational. And sometimes that can be after the fact that you read the book and you say, oh, I really see that now. And that can be healing, the meaning making. Yes, that meaning making is is so critical. That's kind of what um, what I think is missing in a lot of the, the books is that that they're not clear that they're they're telling a story, but the meaning's not coming through. Right, and I think that was the that was a good you know Elizabeth Kubler Ross came up with all these beautiful steps that we all go through, not necessarily in that linear order. And then toward the end of her life, along with David Kessler, came up with that that stage, which I think was really critical of finding meaning because. And I don't think you can find that right away. And it was really important to me that I I not, because I am a, a teacher in the transformational space and I know how to make meaning of things with, you know, students and clients. And I did not want to do a spiritual bypass with this journey and, and make meaning before the meaning, in a sense, arises. That's different than my mind trying to make meaning without my embodied experience but you know the, for me when meaning arose it really it really felt like that is true i i know was that wonderful i think elizabeth kubler ross one, one quote she had was something around um beautiful people don't just happen 
And uh, I think that's really beautiful. Like the, that is in itself beautiful, that the, there's the hard dismantling, cracking open, breaking open, working the transmissional work, but then, then the beauty, and then you could see the beauty often later that you couldn't see, or if you tried to see it too soon, it cuts the path short. That's right. It, it, it really is. I, I can see that as you're speaking about it. I was reflecting on how that fit into my life, and that's that's really it. I didn't get there after the, the death of my first husband who died. I I just was really kind of lost for, for that whole time, and I was searching, but I didn't really get there. But then after I went through the experience again, I looked at things differently, and things started coming more clearly into focus. And, and the more they did, the more I could see what was really going on and how I was growing and learning and becoming from it in a way that I hadn't yet. Because I, I was always so focused, you know, <laughs> with um, teaching, writing in the university. I was, you know, you, you are focused on what you're doing and your role in the department and what you have to do. And I wasn't having that ability to to see the the grace and beauty of the whole world and the whole experience and and the how rewarding it is to be able to be with other people and talk with other people and and support each other in the whole process. Mm-hmm. I think that that made all the difference to me when I could open up and and see that and experience that. Yeah, and now you're offering that to others. Mm-hmm the context for that which is really i would imagine it's also part of your healing very and, much and so yeah. i can say for for me to be speaking now on podcasts as the book is getting ready to come out um this is a different phase of my own healing also because there was of course there was the living through it and all the ways that i worked to heal and heal myself and all and to you know, the field around me. And then there was the writing, which was also healing, as I said. And and now there is the articulating, giving voice to it. And I, I will say it's it takes me back over that landscape again in in different ways or with a little bit more perspective or a little mm-hmm. different way of seeing something. And that's that's very powerful for me. It, it, it is for me too. That is um, describes it very much how things have gone for me. And I I started writing after after my second husband died, not for anybody else to read, but just for me. Like you were saying earlier, that the more I did that, the more I explored that, the the better I was able to kind of tie my life together. And that led to everything else that I've been doing. And, and the more that it's led to and the more I've been doing, the better I feel. And I, I tell people often that I'm happier now than I ever have been. And I'm shocked to hear myself say that, you know, but it's true. And, and, it, and the happiness, you know, and mm-hmm. the, the happiness, that's a complicated thing for any of us going through the profound loss mm-hmm. because it does feel in the moment like 
oh, certainly in the, in, the, in the initial days, you can't imagine ever being happy again. You can't even imagine what it is. But it's, it is interesting. It's almost like the more your heart is broken open, it has broken open the capacity for you to feel everything if you if you're open to that. And and happiness would be be one of those things. But I would say for me, maybe maybe it would be to say the happiness I experienced before didn't have a low note in it. You know, if I were to think about a chord in music, mm-hmm. it had a lot of bubble and a lot of frisson, you know, like that. It was that kind of energy. And and now I feel there's a there's a deep note of in a sense the the wound I carry, the loss I carry, the parts of myself that were, you know, David, my my love for him, my losing him, and the and the life I had. And but that wound is now a, gives a gives a richness to happiness. I guess is the best way to describe it. And I, I don't know how you would describe it for yourself, but I, I have not returned to, to the happiness I knew before this happened. And I don't think I ever will. And that happiness was connected to that person then my understanding of happiness, this happiness today feels much more robust, actually, embodied even. I I agree with you totally. I, it, it's broader and deeper and higher and all those things than anything that I've experienced before. And I don't think there's going back after you've got to a point where you, you're having these these kind of experiences. And it's it's a, a my life is much more satisfying now, mm. if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. Wow. Well, what do you want people to to take away from your book individually? If they read your or not, if when they read your book, what would you like them to to come out of it with? Well, the title is. The title came from one of my favorite poems, and and poetry was actually an enormously powerful ally for me during the whole journey. I've taught, used poetry in my my work uh, for for many many years, and uh, I'm going to have on my website. In fact, it's almost ready to go now. Um, when before the book comes out, I'll have the the poems that were really helpful for me during the descent during the time of what I call the initiation and then the return itself. But one of my favorite poems was is a poem by Antonio Machado, who's a Spanish poet, turn of the century, late 1800s, early 1900s. And there's a line in that poem, Traveler, you make your path by walking. It's, it's, a, it's a beautiful poem. Um, but it was with me in something I used from the very beginning. It was a phrase I just kept repeating all the time. I'm making my path by walking. We're making our path by walking. It just became a powerful mantra for me from the perspective of, and this is what I'd like uh, the book to be for, for people, there is no one path for grief. There just is not. If you hold this as a transformational experience where you are in, in the cauldron of your life where all of a sudden there's a lot of fire and heat that loss brings, you are making your path. And movement is the key thing here. You know, that there, the movement, not that you're always moving, 
because sometimes stillness is part of the movement, but that you are unfolding your path and being true to that, getting the support you need as you go is so important. I, I think underneath that, I would say three things that I think are critical. And I just did a little a little video of this last week, actually, and put it on, on a, my social page. But the three things to sort of remember when walking through dark times, if, if I think if people take anything away from the book itself, is that in that metaphor of you make your path by walking, you just really need to see the one next stone. But very often, you know, we've lost, I lost uh, the, the whole future I could see. I could see the whole future with my partner and the, my community and everything I was doing. It was, and then all of a sudden I saw nothing. There's a void there. And and sometimes there's this feeling like you've got to regroup and get a plan and figure it out and know where you're going. And no, you just need to see the one next step and it will show itself to you. And 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 then honoring that. So that's one. And then two, and this was really key for me with a partner who who died by suicide, is that as long as you hold back forgiveness, you you hold back your own freedom. But I'm I took my time to get to forgiveness. It took a long time to get to forgive, to real forgiveness, where the identity because the identity that this happened to, that Suzanne could not be the Suzanne that genuinely forgave my husband for leaving in the way that he did and leaving me with what he left me with. But I could, I knew I wanted to get there in an embodied way if I could get there for my own freedom. And then the third thing is accepting what is, and this is in a, in a serious loss, um, which I would assume people are, you know, come to find your podcast because they're going through a grieving journey. The very hard, hard part is to accept that this really is your life now, right now. And and the, it is the ground from which you might become, from whatever is next might become. And that you don't get these moments back or this day back, that they're going to be gone. <laughs> so, so living fully now in the broken, open Rather than it's all going to be better when I could just get there, uh, somewhere else, that this is itself the moment you've been served. And and it is a powerful opportunity to just be with it, to really be with it. And you need support to do that. You need to just, you know, there are, um, community to, to do that. There are many things I, I talk about in the book around that. So those are some of the key things, I'd say. That's a lot. That's pretty perfect. I, I think that that, and just hearing you say that is going to make a lot of people really want to read this and see what it's about. And I, I highly recommend it. So I appreciate you coming today and, and having this conversation. It's, I, I just, uh, there's so much there that people can learn from. Thank you, Emily, for inviting me to sit with you in this um, deep space of of conversation around what it means to be moving through a, a dark time, a grieving time. It really is. It's so so many of us don't take the time or have somebody to talk to about things like this. So 
at least they can get a taste of that and where they can go and where they can take things. Mm -hmm. So thank you for joining us today. And for our listeners, I'll have all of the, the links for Suzanne on that on, on the show notes so that you can get a copy of the book for yourself because I know that you're going to want to get it. So thank you for listening. Thank you for being here, Suzanne. And I, I just wish you all the good wishes in the world. This is going to be a marvelous journey to go on with this book coming out. Thank you so much. And for my listeners, I'll see you again next week when we'll have another very interesting guest. So thank you so much for listening. Aloha. Do you want more comfort, support, and happiness? Join the Grief and Happiness Alliance. Visit my website at lovingandlivingyourwaythroughgrief.com and read my book, Loving and Living Your Way Through Grief. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast, rate it, review it, and binge on all our episodes on grief and happiness. I can't wait to welcome you back to another episode.